Hi, this is Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review Podcast, where in each episode we talk with a writer about how his or her story came to be, meaning all that went wrong and ultimately right in bringing to life a story that needed to be told. As in season one, each of these writers has a story that appears in this issue of the review, five stories built around a single theme. In this issue, that theme is silence. Five years ago, Bobby Fiesler came upon the story, the story of an especially horrific suicide on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. The story drew a good deal of media attention, especially from the college newspaper, and in particular, the reporting of one young journalist who thought he was doing his job by telling his readers what he had learned. He was. He soon learned that that in itself was a problem. So Bobby wrote a first draft of that story and then set it aside so he could get to work on what would become his critically acclaimed and award-winning book, Tinderbox. He came back to the story of that suicide, a wiser writer, no less troubled by what he had found. I was, I'm eager to talk to Bobby about what it's like having to tell one of the worst stories in the world. Um, and, And we're talking about a story that is not happening in... Syria or Afghanistan or Nicaragua, um, but happens with all too much frequency, not only in this country and to every and uh, touches so many lives, but around the world, which is about suicide. And it's a story. And it's a story about one suicide and one young man, and also about the the young man who thought that it was his job as a journalist to cover it. Um, so. Bobby, who took his own life in in the story? Uh, there was a a senior uh, at the University of Cincinnati. He was a 23 year old promising young man named Tyler McDonough, who um, on the night of May 1st, 2011, climbed to the top of a television tower that overlooks uh, the rest of the University of Cincinnati campus, um, and then leapt off. Leaping off, though, is not a private act of going to a room and, you know, overdosing on sleeping pills or doing any the the other ways that we I think we we associate with suicide. This was ultimately became a real violent act in the sense of the violence that he inflicted upon himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean it's a he this occurs in a public place um and by nature of the uh of this kind of death. I mean, uh, when you leap off of a television tower, uh, towers expand as they go down. Um, and if you leap off the top point of a tower, you're not going to be able to clear the distance. And so this is very gruesome. I'm sorry to have to get into this. Um, but he, um, his body struck a middle point of the tower, um, and then, uh, split into multiple pieces and then showered uh, down the neighbor onto the, um, neighboring streets covering about three city blocks close to campus. Um, and it became a public event uh, because individuals who then left their homes in the morning um, were forced to contend uh, with what had just happened, uh, with uh, coming up close with what appeared to be almost a war zone. Now, before we continue, I, I, you did something really interesting in the story, and I'm glad you did, which is, and I want to do the same thing here, which is basically it's it's an advisory, and we should explain that a little bit, both for the st- for those who 
who, who read the story, but also for people who are listening to this podcast. Su- uh, suicide is a, a phenomenon that has been touching so many aspects of our society, um, and that individuals who are facing, um, if they're having suicidal thoughts, or uh, if you're facing some sort of situation that you cannot feel like you can get help from, that there are avenues to explore. You can call the National Suicide Helpline. There are people who care about you, who you can reach out to, and that a story like this um, might not be the best thing to listen to. This is not. Uh, this is a story that discusses a uh, suicide graphically and at length. It'll delve very deeply into, as, as best as one can, trying to explore uh, the lead-up to the tragic death of a promising young man. Um, and although this is a story for those who care about the at-risk, I don't think that this is a story deemed safe for the at-risk to read. Um, and I've, I've spoken to several noted psychiatrists and psychologists who feel so. Um, so I guess that's the advisory I want to give, uh, give up front, that it's okay to stop listening. Uh, and it's okay to not read this story uh, if you are if you are personally facing that circumstance. Okay, thank you for that. Um, in fact, one of the things that's interesting is that in in the story early on, you you actually do a remarkable job of ex, of ex, of two things. One, which is in addition to telling the story itself, is extrapolating about how much suicide affects so many people, not just those who choose to take their own lives, but the ripple effect of suicide, a suicide on so many lives touches more people than I couldn't have even imagined. Yeah, there are about six survivors generally who are very, you know, usually very close friends or family members who are immediately impacted the death. There's about 135 to 145 that, depending on the expert you cite, people who are emotionally impacted by the death um, and will at some point be seeking out um, some sort of count, grief counseling or help. Um, and then there are, there's just the general networks of people who are in contact with individuals. So um, it expands and exponent. Generally, every person knows about 600 people. Um, and so when you start multiplying these figures, you know, six times 135 times, you know, 600, and then you reduce for overlaps in networks, um, a very conservative figure I have is that in general about, I mean, 80 million people know, uh, or about, you know, one, mil- one quarter of the U.S. population knows someone or is in contact with some network annually in which someone has died by suicide. Um, it is a shockingly common occurrence um, where year to year uh, these events st- strike us. And I, w- I just want to emphasize when I, when I talk about these figures that, that, that we know these people. We know that it happens. Um, and in a sense, are continuing to, to live and continue with our society and pursue certain things um, in terms of just the normal course of business um, is allowing a phenomenon that's not just bad, but getting worse uh, to persist. Um, so the, the suicide rate uh, in the United States, actually globally, has been rising uh, since the late 90s, uh, wiping out. And the suicide rate is not just the number of people who are dying, but the percentage of the population who are dying by suicide. Um, and it's wiped out all of the progress and gains that were made in the 90s 
um, through the suicide prevention lobby. Um, and it actually then surpassed uh, those gains that we've had. And now, so we're, we're worse off actually than when we started, when people began studying this phenomenon and people began trying to prevent it. Um, although we know a bit more, it's very primitive science, science and it's a very new and unexplored field that's been, um, I think, highly moralized and highly medicalized. And I think that leads to... Um, a great deal of marginalization, where I think a, a figure, if you told someone that, you know, one out of every four Americans has, has been touched in some sense uh, by a suicide death, um, people would be surprised to hear that based on the, based on the number of stories that, uh, that are reported on suicide year to year. And also, I think, based on our own sense of denial, we, where we want to think, nobody I know does that. And what's interesting here is that you've chosen to tell the story about one suicide, and which, of course, no one, no one event, no one person's life, certainly no suicide, can explain everything. But there is something about this suicide that speak, spoke powerfully to you. Why? Well, it was the worst suicide death I'd ever heard of. It was also the most senseless one I'd ever heard of. Um, I mean that uh, it, it was a, a a young man that was essentially about to face, you know, the promise of the rest of his life, and was foregoing not just years but decades of future life uh, to perish in a certain way that made no sense to me and made no sense to a lot of people um, who inevitably uh, tried to analyze it, tried to understand it. Um, and then, uh, the way that it happened so publicly, um, washed away, quashed any possibility of this being, uh, an experience for private grief for the family, uh, which is something that I contend with and wring my hands over and feel terrible about having to, again, even if it's eight years later, report and talk about what happened in this story, because I'm sure this is something that, that will continue to impact the family for the rest of their lives. There's no question. But uh, because it occurred in a public place and because it was confusing uh, the way uh, that people interacted with the, the essentially the remains of the deceased at the base of the tower for hours, um, it resulted in this, this particular death being reported as a form of breaking news by the college newspaper which once it became clear, uh, it's called the, uh, the daily, well, no, what is it called, the news record. And once it became clear um, that actually the death was a suicide death, it resulted in a tremendous backlash against the, news, the student newspaper and against one specific student journalist, honestly, for, um, for daring um, uh, to having, uh, you know, the temerity to report this specific suicide story accurately and truthfully in a way that many people who then knew the victim felt was disrespectful. Why did that happen? Why did people turn against this young man, turn against the newspaper, even though it was an event in which, as you say, everybody kind of knew what Tyler had done to himself? I, I think there, it caused a great deal of vitriol and backlash because I think in general... Um, 
I don't know if this is a normal process of grief or not, but especially if there's a sense, uh, if there, if a, a death involves a senseless death um, in your circle, that one of the first impacts uh, reactions to reading a story of a friend or a family member dying in such a unfair and gruesome um, and gory uh, and terrible way um, in a, in a newspaper is to react with rage um, and in a sense, I, in a sense, I think people felt like they were defending uh, the victim they knew, the person they knew, um, from what they deemed to be, or, or initially presumed to be, sensationalistic content. Um, and the word sensationalism is quite funny, but it's bandied about a lot um, in relation to nature of suicide reporting. But in the case of when a death is initially uncertain, cause of death is initially uncertain, and when there is a certain amount of ghastliness and gore to the death, um, reporting such a scene accurately um, could, if you were not personally there, um, be interpreted by a person that's just reading it as a a kind of um, yellow journalism, sensationalistic news. Um, They're just delving into all the nasty little details. In essence, uh, one could interpret a story like this as being just some sort of tasteless piece of tabloid true crime, unless if you were at the scene, and then you would understand that no, this was exactly this was exactly what what had occurred. Uh, the quotations that uh, that are being read, the descriptions of the scene were accurate, um, and that one would uh, one would come to know if they were at the scene that this was a. a, a uh, remarkable um, and newsworthy out of ordinary experience that a great uh, many people in a very populated area close to a college campus went through and we're trying we're seeking to understand what's interesting many things here are interesting is that you started the story you wrote a first draft of the story and then you stopped stepped away from the story for quite a long time because you ended up you because you wrote your book, and we can let's talk about that for a second because you make this departure, and we, you and I we've known each other for a long time. You and I had, had talked about you, we had talked about the story, and I had, and I was when I saw the first draft of it, well, these several years ago, I was really floored by it, and then you said, "Listen, I need to step away, and I'll be back when I'm done." And that a couple of years elapsed. And you came back, and you and I have spoken about this. I felt as, I wouldn't say a different journalist because we're never different really, but as, well, you came back, and, and this is going to sound terrible, kind of more mature as a, as a reporter because you had gone through the, the crucible of reporting this book and then writing this book. And when you came back to the story, it was a, a totally different thing. I say that, A, because because the story is quite remarkable, and also because I think for the, a lot of the listeners of this podcast, they may encounter, and this happens all the time, a story that they're pretty ready to tell, but maybe not as ready to tell as they think they are. And they come back to it sometime later, and all of a sudden, because they have more skills, because they've written more stuff stories in the meantime, because they've conducted more interviews and grappled with this, they come back to that initial story and go, oh, I can see it clearly, more clearly now. Does that in any way resonate with your experience with this one? 
certainly. I mean, I had a I had a great deal of word count underneath my belt just from by nature of writing a nonfiction book between here and there. So I was certainly a better writer. I had done a great deal of interviews with, uh, you know, victims of another terrible event uh, or, you know, survivors and family members. Um, and I had a great deal of, I would say, I, I hopefully always had empathy, but I had a great deal more empathy uh, for individuals who've encountered traumatic experiences and who lived through them. Um, and then also, I, you know, I think I was more sensitized to the nature of uh, what rules this story would break uh, if, it, if, it was, if I was to go forward with it. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, Michael, I had, to really, I had to really ask myself whether or not this story does any good by writing it and finishing it. I, 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 the nature of suicide reporting says that there are certain things that you, and you just, these are, you know, you go online, you can Google it. The CDC guidelines are quite clear um, in that, you know, a, a suicide story is not supposed to talk about the cause of death, you know, uh, in detail. Um, one isn't supposed to uh, try to rhapsodize about uh, the victim because that can, that can result in the, people thinking that the death is romanticized and especially the at risk feeling that perhaps uh, if I'm unseen now in my life, perhaps dying in a, um, taking my own life would be a one method uh, of becoming known. And that's dangerous. Um, obviously it's a, you know, it's a complete false, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a dangerous notion. Um, and I became um, more and more afraid <laughs> The more I, the more I guess you used the word mature, uh, the more wizened I became to this, the nature of this story about um, how careful, how much more careful I would have to be if I, um, in this final draft rather than in an initial one. Because in the initial one, I think I was so, um, I mean, there's a certain amount of hubris to any, uh, to any young reporter where um, you just want to get at the thing you want to, if you're, you're reporting and your interviews and all the reams of documents you're going through, it's just, you're looking for the combination that's going to unlock the safe so that you get the little golden nugget of information. Um, and, you know, and uh, that's, that's the main thing where, uh, and what, what damage that causes in between here and there to get the combination to the safe is something that many journalists, don't consider or, or, um, you know, Janet Malcolm wrote about this in journals and the murder. I'm not the first person to talk a lot about this, but as a, um, as a more wizened reporter and as a, in a sense, as a person who's been, I carry the ghosts of my previous stories, Michael, a lot of journalists do, but who's been wounded by telling very difficult stories, a series of them in a row. I knew that this stories like this can bring pain not just to the writer, but to others. Um, and that a great more deal of care and consciousness needs to, needed to be applied to it so that I could decide if, this, if I'm going to go forward and finally finish this story and put it to rest for myself, um, that ultimately uh, I, I followed some sort of a do least harm method of exploring these very difficult, unanswerable 
quandaries and quagmires of our society involving this phenomenon of what do we do with the fact that most of us would rather do anything but die, and yet a few of us want to. It's just, it's even now as I say it, it's the most bizarre subject and the most, uh, you know, uh, I can think of. Um, And so that's kind of what happened in between all the drafts. And I avoided it, Michael. Because I'm after my book was so hard to write, the tinderbox, which is about the fire at the gay bar, I had to go see a grief counselor <laughs> after I wrote that book. I was so sad for what had happened to all the victims, and I honestly, my husband was so worried about me when I took up High Falls again about what the hell was going to happen to me, um, about whether or not I was going to take on some other extra form of trauma that broke me. Or, and then that sounds so silly because it wouldn't, it's not like a story can do it or anything like that, but that wouldn't, um, that I wasn't ready to do. Um, and so I, I worry about the, what happens to people who read this story. Um, ultimately, I, I do still. I worry about um, how people who cared about the victim um, would feel if they chose to read it. Perhaps they shouldn't. I'm not, I can't answer that question for them. Um, and I worry about whether or not the truth can it be an accidental weapon. You know, what's been interesting in the time we have left is that what, what you've been talking about in a way that is so powerful and, 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 and I think too unusual is a writer's relationship with the story. And what you're talking about, both, you know, having started the story and then down Tinderbox, and then come back to the story, is a kind of relationship that, in many ways, is difficult, but which writers, I would argue, should aspire to. This should not be easy. Um, this should, when you're writing about this, when you're writing about suicide, when you're writing about a, such a senseless death as Tyler McDonough's, and you decide to do it, you kind of have to be, as you are, which is all in. There's no way you can do that story right and not have it take a toll on you. Sure. And you have to be willing to look hard, too. And you, I mean, I, and I'm not saying I'm any kind of exemplar, because maybe I did something really wrong by writing this, Michael. I still haven't really decided about what the, what the net result of me writing this piece was. And also, I'm still mystified that I, that I did it. <laughs> And I'm, st- I'm still interested by it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Delacour Review podcast. If you are a writer or have friends who, like all writers, is struggling to tell the story that he or she needs to tell, we invite you to share this podcast with them, along with those from season one. You can find this story and the others in issue number two at www.delacourtreview, that's one word, delacourtreview.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us at Twitter at Delacourt Review. The Delacourt Review appears three times a year, winter, spring, and fall, and its home is the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The podcast is produced by Katie Ferguson, And the theme music you'll hear is by Jim Okar. 
The editor of the Delacorte Review is Mike Hoyt. Our senior editor is Sissy Falligan. And associate editors are Natasha Rodriguez and Abigail Covington. Our illustrator is Eleanor Hamelin. We'll see you next time.